out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's the turn of the Scottish post-punk band who blended funk, rock, punk rock and new wave music. It is the one and only APB, who I spoke to their bass player, singer and songwriter. It is the one and only Ian Slater to find out more about life, love and poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview um, after several minutes of casual chat. We got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years and early musical influences. Ian, it's over to you. My first record was Telegram Sam, I think. My first 45 was, uh, the first, that was the first one I bought. Uh, right. When I must have been, I was born in 61, so I was, yeah, I was uh, a little bit older than you. Yes. When that came out, but uh, not much. So, and then, but, but no, well, that's the second, before that, when I was about eight, I think I bought, I bought uh, Heartbreak Hotel. When my, when my dad took me to a music shop in Bathgate and we, it was called the Music Box. I remember the name of the shop, actually. And that was the first uh, single I bought. Yeah. Heartbreak Hotel was there. That was your moment. And, and how come you chose that particular song or record? Because uh, I've no idea. I haven't got a clue. I must have got, must have got in the record shop. It must, have, it must have been on. And I must have put it on. And my dad said, oh, listen to this. Something like that. No in those days, you used, to be like, you used to go to little booths and you could play records with little booths in, in, in record shops in. Yes, well, that's very exciting. I think one of my first memories of of a record that I thought would sounded amazing, I was probably about five or six at the time, was Scylla Black doing Step Inside Love. I think there was a show called The Scylla Show, and I just remember that was the opening song, and I always thought how dynamic and dramatic it was. And then I found out it was written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Yeah, we had that one also. We also had that one. Yes, yeah, so that was... That my mum and dad had that record, and I remember playing it, and I remember scratching it as well. Oh, dear, uh, that's... that. Down, that down. Don't ever scratch records. But then, were you were you from a kind of a musical family? Did did they have quite an interest in music? My mum and dad grew up with the Beatles and stuff, so they were you know they were that kind of the Mercy Beat thing and the Beatles thing, and yeah, they actually went to see the Beatles in Edinburgh. Right. One of the I don't even know where the gig was, and. Yeah, but one of the big stories is they went to see it and they sat in the foyer and they said they could hear it better in the foyer than they could actually in the auditorium. Yeah. One of those stock stories about going to see the Beatles. Yeah, well, it's nice to drop that one in, isn't it? That's always a, it's a good one. Did you did you have any kind of brothers and sisters who were sort of musically driven as well? Well, it's a lot, I've got a little sister, Fiona, and she, yeah, pretty musical. She's a bit more into musical theatre and like school, you know, dances, school plays and things. Yes. But, uh, yeah. and, but uh, and she played the piano. Yeah, not, you know, but, uh, yeah, but I started playing guitar when I was about 16, 15, 16, something like that. Yes. So did you, I mean, did you grow up then, you weren't in a city or big, you know, like, area. Was it quite, you know, like the countryside? Ellen, uh, it was when, when I moved there when I was 10, and that is about 16 miles northeast, north, north of Aberdeen. Yes. Quite, Five miles in from the coast, so it's very rural. Right, because I grew up in the village in in East Anglia, and um, to be honest, there wasn't a lot apart from playing football and 
running around in wellies and getting, you know, I don't know, wet feet in the brook. So I just wondered, because it's kind of one of those things, not many people form bands, you know, in, in the area and, the, and my sort of childhood. We all played football a lot. I just wondered what it was like for you sort of growing up in a well, school. Well, it was being like when punk rock came along and that just kick-started the whole thing. And we just went, oh, I, we can do that. Yes. I we were at the age 15, 16 when that, when that kicked off. So we were at that age, you know, buying enemy at the school and stuff. And by that time, I, I progressed from, well, <laughs> progressed from uh, T-Rex to Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath and stuff. And then punk rock happened. And then, you know, we were 15, 16. So it was like, whoa, that's, this, is, this, is, this is different. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Then, so how did so, you come across or why did you decide to go for the bass guitar? Um, I don't know. Um, it was a couple of us, and we just decided like, you're, you're going to get you're going to get a guitar, and I'm going to get a bass guitar. And actually, at the school we were at, there was a one on the wall, and my dad was the headmaster, and uh, I got to borrow the bass guitar from from the music department. My which God, is, which it's is still up on the wall, and it's still up in the wall on in on in the Ellen Academy, by the way. Because oh. I saw I saw it in an Evelyn Glennie uh, film that was. On a, uh, it, it, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you so, went so place. And she, she was three, two years below me, three years below me at school, and um, the percussion player. And uh, and, it, and she was doing a little interview in the music room in, in Ellen Academy, like this about seven years ago, right enough. And it's and it's back. It's still on the wall that the guitar that I, that I first played. Oh, really that's cool. that. That must have hit. You must have hit the um, the pause button or the freeze frame button to say. Look. I did. I did, and I've got a picture. <laughs> I did exactly that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I could imagine your family going, yeah, thanks, we'd love that story. Yes, God, that's so incredible. So then, I mean, because it's one thing wanting, you know, to sort of have a girl on the bass guitar, but how did you and your, and was this with Glenn and George? Did, were you the three who were the nucleus? Or, or yeah, the nucleus started, of the off, we started off in 79, 78, 79, 77 actually, with Glenn and the guy but then that fizzled out and it became something else. Then it was, then it was George in about uh, 79, early 79. Yeah. And then and it was the three of us for, for quite a while. And then it kind of it morphed, it changed quite a lot. It did change an awful lot because you, you had a very distinct sound. So did you start going to a lot of punk gigs and rock gigs at this kind of period from 75 onward, what onwards? Yeah, more like 77 onwards. Yeah, the first punk gig I went to was a clash at, uh, in January 78 at Aberdeen Music Hall, I think it was. Right. Yeah. Nice. So that was the first clash. The first gig. Clash with uh, the specials who were on uh, were on second, in, on the middle, and Suicide were on first. Jeezy crazy. All for probably about £2.50p, wasn't it? It was something like that, yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll, yeah, I still remember it to this. Yeah. So at this but. stage, were you quite committed? I mean, had you thought, you know, because I, I just to say, I remember, you know, over Christmas, I was watching this documentary, a football documentary about Scottish football players and uh, managers. And Bill Shankly said, you know, you had two choices when you were growing up, wherever that was. He said, you either went down the pit or you played football. And it was like, you know, so obviously the careers teacher had a quite an easy job. So um, was it, were you kind of driven by some sort of like, God, we've just got to get this band together because otherwise it's, it's going to yeah. be happening. Well, we didn't really have much of a choice because I wasn't very good at football. I, was just, I did try. <laughs> I did try. I was in the school team, but it didn't last very long. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, I, yeah. I, I do remember the 1974 World Cup with great fondness. And um, I have to say the Scottish football team would have never had a better time to try and 
progressed to at least the semi-finals because they had such an amazing team that year. So, um, and 78. Right. Yeah, actually 78. 1970, that's the one I remember. Nineteen seventy. Mexico, what was that? 1970, wasn't it? Yeah, mine was the, the one which was in Germany in 1974. And there was people like yeah. David Harvey and Gull and Joe Jordan, Peter Lorimer, Kenny Dalgleish. Yeah, I'd lost, I'd lost, uh, lost interest in football by then, by then, I think. 74, yeah. Well, I, think, I think so. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. No, actually, that must be. Was it 1970, was it? Was it? Well, 1970 was was somewhere very hot, but I was too young to appreciate well, I'm it. Getting, I think I'm getting mixed up. Yes. Probably am. And 78 was, God, this is exciting, this, isn't it? 78 was the Argentina one, and that was when Scotland had these great hopes, and then they got really humiliated, whereas... Well, Ali's, Ali's army. Yeah, yeah, was yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. They, they, they were going to play Peru, and they were thinking, oh, they don't even know how to play football, and then they lost 3-0. But they had that Archie Gemmell scored that amazing goal against Holland, didn't he? Where he I just... do you remember that goal, yeah. Yes. So anyway, did you, at yeah. the age of 16, did you leave school or as your dad was a headmaster, I could imagine he said no? Yeah, went, no, I went to, uh, went to college to do business studies, got thrown out after a year, then went to another college to do communication studies, got thrown out and just left after about three months. Yes. Just, just, to be, <laughs> just, to, just to be in the band, basically. And wow. We're getting gigs and yeah, and this to say that's it, bugger it. But uh, this is what we're doing. That was it. Yeah, your dad must have been just delighted by then, couldn't he? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, no, he was actually quite supportive. To be to be fair, yeah, I must admit, I mean, he used oh. to drive us to, to, to gigs and stuff. Well, yeah. yeah. So how did you come across the sound? Because I've been, you know, listening to the band a lot, and um, it's got it's a very you know because most bands I interview you know, don't have that kind of sound that you developed. And it's quite unusual even. But, you know, you got John, uh, two John Peel sessions. So how did, how did you sort of fix on this? Uh, well, after me and Glenn went on holiday to France when we were 19, so that would have been a year with that. Oh, I can't do the maths. Um, and it, 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 oh, there was loads of uh, funk music getting played and stuff. And came home and I was just fixated by that. And uh, I was just did, I just become, became obsessed with George Clinton, Parliament, Funkadelic, Sly Stone. And then um, we ended up just being this few little lads from the northeast of Scotland trying to do that. And what came out, try to be like them, but what came out was just people who couldn't really do it at all. But it came out as something different, which didn't sound like anybody else either. Yes. <laughs> so it kind of, yeah, that's, that's why, that's how that whole thing came about. And then, you know, just. Oh, maybe we've got something here. I didn't think like that. It just it just happened. Because it's kind of interesting. Because I did an interview with um, the one of the guys who ran the label um, Z Records, which was based in New York, and that had all that kind of slightly, I suppose, very funk kind of snappy kind of groove sound, didn't they? From that kind of Max's Kansas City and CBGBs. I don't know, you, you must have come across Z, Z Records because it had all those kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember who was on them, right enough. There was people like James White, was, was oh, not, Keith Crowell, and, and, you know, it... it, it, it and it also had Bill, Bill Laswell's material and various other people, but it oh, had... Yeah, that, yeah, I remember now, yeah. And sure. it, it had a particular sort of quality, you know, they were obviously... They weren't sort of, they were, it sounded like people who weren't sort of ensconced from the age of, I don't know, one in, in sort of, I suppose, Motown and soul music, but had sort of got an interest, a bit like yourself, and had sort of made your own sort of mark on it. So I just wondered how you came across it, because 
because at that stage, you know, you'd had that punk period and then post-punk with people like Gang of Four and Magazine and Pear Ubu and people like that, which kind of, but you don't sound like any of those bands, do you? Yeah, we probably were, yeah. No, we don't, no. But we're trying to be, as I said, we weren't trying to be like that angular thing, like the, but we're just trying to be like George Clinton and then obviously failing miserably. Yes, but at the same time, you, you obviously sort of hit some sort of gold dust there. Because it, it was kind of interesting, because 79, you know, Thatcher gets in, so there's this kind of sudden wave of conservative government. And then, you you know, we had the crisis, and then Greenham Common, and then the miners' strike, and then, you know, various other things, Red Wedge at that stage, but that was a bit later. So did you, as with a lot of those indie bands I've interviewed, did you sort of do the Job Seekers Allowance, Enterprise Allowance schemes, or were you able to support yourself with gigs? No, we, we always signed on the door all through that period, and because and because we never made enough uh, made enough money through the band to to you know to to unqualify for it. That was you know we were always qualified to be on the door to be signing on. Yeah, it was, it was quite easy to do to do that, and you, because we lived in Ireland as well, we didn't even have to go to the job centre. We just we just sent in a. a Decoration every every couple of weeks and mm-hmm. you sent you sent your checks or it yeah. But, uh, God, actually, I can remember that, yes, because I lived in the countryside and I had to sort of, you sign on little sort of, not a cheque, but some sort of, no, I haven't worked in two weeks, don't worry about it. And then they sent, yeah, sent you a little gyro and then you went to the post office and cashed it. And, that, yeah, it was, and then obviously you get some extra, you get 50 quid a gig for doing, playing this student's union stuff and, and that would, you know. Yeah. Back then, and then and it progressed from there. We got really big in the other days as well. You know, we just uh, eventually. Yes, but your second single, I'd like to shoot you down. This this is the one that slightly captured everyone's imagination, didn't it? It was the one that sort of sold really well. Yeah, well, it did all right. Yeah, but great little label called Oily Records from Aberdeen, uh, and they believed in us and put the record out, and it was. You know, you know, they had a lot to do with it, you know. Yes. But they, they did the first, first, first four records. And it can you know, continue to help us with, you know, when we signed to Albion and, you know, further on. We always kept, you know, doing stuff for them. I've never come across Oily Records before. Never? Never come across that label, but I probably wouldn't have done, would I? It's, it is better than Steam. Who else did they have? They had us, they had a band called The President's Men, they had a band called The Squibs, they had a band called The Tools. Mm. Uh, who else did they have? I um, think that's it, actually, isn't it? And you? And us, yeah. It was quite a specialised label, it only band. So then, how did John... And then, obviously, you get the big kind of... The blessing, almost like from the Pope, John Peel. How did that session <laughs> come about? Uh, well, somebody, the legend has it that uh, Rusty Egan told, told, told him about us in a club. But <laughs> yeah, this story actually does say, I bumped into him another week and I, I told him about this and I, I've never actually asked him about it because I've never met him before. You know, it was a happened to be in a festival in Belgium. And I said, by the way, I always said if I ever bumped into you and asked you if this, this was true, he said, oh, what, mate? I, I actually said you should say that to everybody. I said, I talk pain about every band. <laughs> so, so it's my best uh, lovely accent. Um, um, so, uh, but yeah, uh, that was the story. That's what John Peel said. He said that he, he had Rusty Egan uh, told me, and then we were in the pub, and 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 Ellen, and somebody came in and said, John Peel's just said on the radio that he wants you to get in touch to do a session. We're like, what? You kidding me? So, we, you know, rushed home, and uh, and uh, 
not really, not literally, but yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and you know, we were relatively excited, and uh, and uh, you know, you know, got in touch, and then since I think within about a month, we were down in London doing it. Yes, and what was your memory of being at the Maid of L studio? Because I think on this occasion you had, is it John Owen? Uh, Owen Williams was your producer. And the first one was, was it Owen Williams? I thought it was John, John Porter was the first one. Oh, John Porter. Let's have a look. I can um, tell, you right now. I'll tell you right now, hold on. Oh, yes, we need the facts. Actually, I think your, your second one is Tony Wilson, not that one, though. Oh, oh, this? No. Is that your BBC sessions? Yeah, it tells you on here who did what. Ah, don't, yes, don't oh, really. No, John Owen Williams, you're right. Yes. <laughs> first one, the second one was Dale Griffin. Uh, John, John Porter was the first David Jensen one, that's, that's what it was. Oh. Yeah, John Owen Williams was the first one, yeah. And Dale Griffin from What the Hooper was the second one. My God. Oh, sorry, that, was, that, was a, that was a David Jensen one. I've got yeah. you. This is good. This is good. And what was your memory of um, being there what, when you look back on it? Uh, first memory was I went down overnight in the train and the train had a crash. That was my first memory. <laughs> yeah, some, the train went along and uh, it was four, four in the morning or something and we, were, and we were in one of those little carriages, you know, your little compartments. And it, all the windows on one side of the train got smashed. My, my earliest memory of it, because uh, there was another train coming and there was something sticking out and you went, duh, 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 smashed, it, smashed all the windows up the side of the train, so it was stuck in our siding for about four, four, four hours before we had to get limped to the next station and had to get on a different train. But we still made it. Anyway, that was the first memory of it. Um, second memory, yeah, I mean, yeah, I remember just actually doing it, I can't remember much about it. I've got pictures of it, I remember, but, um, I remember it being quite quick quite fast and you just did it all you know you just do it, you just do it live you just do it as, you know like you were playing live you just set up and do it yeah because because one thing i've noticed or you know having done this show is that you know we had these great gatekeepers during this period you know and probably into the 90s i have no idea how it works now but you know we had three music you know weekly music papers you know we had john pill janice long kid jensen and also every city and town in in the uk had a small indie night of some description so people if they if they had a break they could sort of you know at least take off and sort of play in front of people who weren't just their friends and family yeah. Anybody else they could blackmail to see them. So did you did you sort of find you know the band took off quite quickly once you yes had had got your sound and had got a single and a John Peel session? Not really. It was always it was just because we you now we hardly got any any press at all. I get any 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 music press. So like you know, the Peel session did help a bit, and we managed to get we got so we got a, a London agent and we did get some London gigs, but it was it was never big, never massive. We played Dingwalls, we played the Rock Garden. Um, and we did like was the universities and stuff, but nothing much. We never did a big huge uh, UK tour ever. Right, blimey. We, we, did, we did sporadic things, and maybe did maybe have three or four things together over a weekend and stuff. But we never ever did a big proper tour. God, that's a shame. It was American tours. <laughs> there was an American one. So how did? How did the American market, American market, nice fridge, um, how did the American market pick up on uh, the band from Aberdeen? 
This is the million dollar question, isn't it? Well, it was through Oily Records sending loads of records, uh, singles and stuff to a, a thing called Rockpool, which was based in New York, which was a radio promotion company. And they were sending it out and, and shoot you down, got big and it just in an underground way in the club. DJ started playing it. Uh, Mark Kamen started playing it. Ivan Ivan started playing it. Dance of Tia, Mud Club, Mark Fontiatis. You know, you know, just big, big underground DJs, and it, it just got better. It just grew and grew and grew, and it was big. It was a big, huge. We didn't even know it was big. Yes. You know, until uh, until suddenly, Mark, a guy called Mark Bevan phoned us up, and he said, uh, "But do you know you're getting played here?" Well, not not really. <laughs> and then, and then he he ended up being our manager for ten years after that. Um, and he he had a tour set up for a Belgian band called Ali Ali. And um, they cancelled and he went, I've got this tour set up, do you want to come and do it? So we went, okay, and that was in 82, I think it was 82. Right. Yeah, late, late 82. Yeah, we'd only had about two singles out by then, three singles, three, three, three records out by then. Yeah. Yes, that's amazing. So did you, when you went to New York, did you suddenly find that you, you were sort of kind of looked upon as um, some sort of cult superstars? Well, pretty much, yeah. It was, it was very strange, yeah. We're getting, you know, people that would knew who we were, we'd be turned up at clubs and stuff. Yeah, come in, then you go, you know, nice big velvet rope dead treatment and stuff. Mental. Yes. Yeah. So did you, I mean, did you play at places like the Mud Club and Danceteria? And, yeah, yeah. Uh, first New York gig was Danceteria. Right. Uh, it, was sold, it was sold out in Mud Club. The second, that, was about the year, that was the next tour. Um, yeah, we did loads of colleges, Hofstra, uh, early on. We did the Rich five times. That's quite a big, big venue. Yes, I've, I've seen sort of amazing clips of quite, you know, well, just a lot of everyone played the Ritz, didn't they? So did, was, did, your, did your appeal sort of spread out of New York into other areas? It was mostly the, the sort of uh, the New York area, the East Coast. Uh, we did go, we did do big, big, a couple of big tours and, you know, went all around, but there was a lot of them weren't massively attended. Uh, LA was okay. Chicago was, was great. Um, uh, Philadelphia was okay. But, and Buffalo was all right. But, but you know, Midwest, yeah. uh, Minneapolis was okay, actually, for, for about a couple of years. Yes, I would imagine the, the print, the Prince connection, well, yeah. the connection, but Prince is from there, isn't he? So. Yeah, we, we played First Avenue a couple of times, actually. Where did you, what was that? We played First Avenue, Prince's place, you know, First Avenue, we did Purple Lane, played that a few times. My God, that's worth dropping into any conversation, isn't it? Um, yeah. What about Boston? Did you play <clears throat> Boston at all? Played Boston, yeah, played, played in Spit a few times, Metro. No, no, actually, it's, Boston was good. There's a station called WFNX that used to play there. In fact, that was, that was one thing. It depended, what, in those days, it, was, it depended on the catchment area of the radio station and which, which stations played you. Yes. In, LA, in New York, it was WLIR. In Boston, it was FNX. Uh, Long Island, yeah, yeah. Long, yeah. And I, I, can't, I can't remember all the names of them, but yeah, it okay. just depended on the catchment area. Yeah. Yes. So as you were progressing and everything was going hunky dory, you you then went because I remember this label because I was, you know, I was obsessed with John Peel, and I remember Sleeping Bag Records started bringing out some quite interesting dance stuff, and you and you signed to them in America, didn't you? And Albion Records in the UK. Well, we, no, Albion put out a lot of stuff, put out a, a few, we did sign to Albion and Albion pub, uh, Publishing, but Sleeping Bag put out, it was a one-off 12-inch. Uh, 
Right. What kind of girl? Yeah, and then ripped off sort of never never paid us a penny. It was number one in the in the Billboard Club chart, and uh, they never we never got a sore penny from that. They completely Ooh. ripped us off. Yeah. Oh, I know that's horrendous, actually. Yeah. So as as the eighties progressed, and you were sort of because um, because you have a good run here, don't you? You bring out sort of your your first major album is something something to believe in eighty five. By this stage, what was the sort of how was the band coping with the? You've been doing it for five years. Uh, just going, going along with it. I mean, we're just enjoying it, you know. Yes. It's, it's not. It's not too difficult to cope with being <laughs> touring around the world, playing, playing, playing your, playing your, playing your own music. Well, at the same time, you were, you had been opening for people like The Clash and James Brown. I mean, you know, this is, this is kind of quite. These, these are serious acts, aren't they? Yeah, but it's yeah, but it's not coping. It's just uh, it's, uh, it's just it's enjoying. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but I suppose having done this, you know, most bands have a you know a five year narrative. You know, they get together, they get the single, they get a John Peel session, things go well. You know, the first album not too bad. Then you know, it's kind of hard to keep that momentum on the second, third albums, especially when you you know there's sometimes, you know, tricky management or lack of money. So I just wondered how you were sort of dealing as the 80s, because, you know, there's so many different tribes and different things that start kind of going on in each decade. You know, I just wondered... Well, our, our New York fans are quite quite, uh, quite um, loyal. I mean, in fact, we, I, well, it's proof, in, proof in the pudding. We're still going back there now. You know, we're still going over and touring there, and we're still, still people... <laughs> we still do sold-out shows in New York and stuff. Oh, well, a lot smaller gigs, but... Yes, well, absolutely, and uh, and with with your kind of American shows that you're doing, and you've got one coming up next month. Are you finding new people coming, or are you sort of still that sort was, of? That was, it was a, the last time in Mercury Lounge. It was there was a quite it was a big good cross section actually. I think so. It was the children of the, <laughs> the kids of the of the people who were going the first time around were, were coming as well. But there yeah. was yeah there was a, there was a there was a good cross section actually. And did you, at this stage, there's the sort of the three of you, but there are occasional kind of changes in the lineup. Well, it's, it's changed all the time. At the moment, it's, it's, I'm the only original person from the early days. John's the drummer, he's been there since 91. Uh, and the guitar player at the moment is Stuart, who's, who lives in New Jersey. He's, he's been our guitar technician for years and years. And uh, so when Glenn didn't want to do it anymore, he was the obvious person and like he's one of our best pals you know so yeah so it's, 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 yes yeah. it is it's tricky so as 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 we sort of truck towards that kind of period because you know the 80s things change quite a lot don't they you know for me there, there was this kind of period where from 87 onwards you know they a lot of the indie bands that I suppose I really loved sort of started to sort of fall up fall away or fall apart and then and the ecstasy sort of scene comes in and then the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds want to have their new soundtrack how did you sort of cope from you know they you know because you did the album something to believe in then there was cure for the blues um i mean what was those kind of what was that period like for the band yeah but cure for the blues one was uh that was, that was the poppiest thing we ever did, and then we ended up n n none of us actually liked it, and <laughs> we hardly ever played any of the songs on it. But I quite like it now, weirdly. Um, but yeah, but after the end of the eighties, we, we they, you know, they kind of 
the noisy things started coming in and we actually did start getting a bit more maybe it's like actually right at the end of the 80s like 1991 like the grungy thing was just starting then wasn't it yes and so the, the, the seattle sound yeah started to sort of yeah make quite a difference really and like we, me and glenn were getting into sonic youth and some stuff like that and, and that, was, that was a bit before then as well you know, before the rest of them did it yes we do love our sonic youth i know well i, I there was the other band that i loved at that period was from minneapolis which was huskadoo and well, then, I love too, yeah. They were kind of the band that I sort of thought were just going to be the biggest ever, which was a kiss of death, really. They split up and they never really made much commercial success. So did you... Sugar, Sugar was all right after that, though. Who was? Sugar was okay after that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, well, you know, I do remember. I think they, they signed for um, Creation Records, didn't they? Yeah, I think I think they did. Yeah, did they? Yes, another three piece. Was the three pieces always your preferred kind of dynamic with the band? I can't generalise with like with that with but with band band amounts. No, I mean if his band's good, it's good. Yes. So then, when you what was the last thing you kind of released and recorded sort of during that period and and did you sort of finish in the early 90s yeah uh, we had what was our last last apb thing was uh, <clears throat> sort of uh, called uh, funk invective which was a quite a it's quite it's a bit harder sounding that was about 87 88 i think yeah and then and we, we kind of we, we morphed into a band we called they've changed the name to loveless and then we, it was a bit that was a bit a lot it was a lot grungy a lot um faster a bit less a lot less funky in fact it wasn't funky at all and we, we actually went over and did a few gigs in america as love was previously apb was out of the bill in fact we did half and half we did half apb gigs to pay for the trip <laughs> right gigs to, to promote new stuff we did limelight as loveless and you know and and cbgb's as loveless and you know but uh, it didn't really come to anything Live-wise, yeah. people, you know, people want to hear the APB songs. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then, did you did you sort of finish being in a band at this stage? Because you were also was it in the Pop Tones um, band Pablo? Yeah. And then we that love was stopped. And then I moved to London, and me and Glenn we both moved to London in '94 with with Lovers actually. And then that, then the lovers fizzled out because Glenn moved back to Aberdeen, just because there was fam- family stuff going on, and he never came back. So uh, that so lovers fizzled out, and then me and John, who was in Loveless, who is this, the APB drummer now, we started Pablo with with Paul Fife, and then that lasted for a good while. We did, we, <laughs> we supported Tool on the European tour and stuff, and. Uh, and that was that was that was, that was good fun. But uh, I had one album for Pop Toys, I Music. Well, it ended up being for on Music for Nations. Mr. McGee very kindly paid for it, and then he said, "He said just just you guys have it because it was yeah, yeah. nice, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and then that fizzled out, and then a bit because uh, just things happen and. And uh, and then the then then this this young American decided to put out the APB records again. Amazing. Twenty fifth anniversary one and the BBC Sessions one, and 
you know, and so right, we ended up with like, you know, we, so suddenly I'd renaissance a bit and renewed interest. So we just started rehearsing that again. And then we went over and did like, you know, to, you know, again, some, some great gigs in, in New York and stuff. Yeah. So is it the case then during that period? Because you, you were sort of a, a, a live engineer for, you know, lots of bands like, you know, Space Keen. And well, you've like, done your homework. Yes, a little bit, and uh, various other bit, and, and even Pete Doherty as well. Did yeah, you still? I'm still I'm doing Pete, Pete Doherty. Are you? Oh, nice. Yeah. Did you? So, did you? Uh, did you just have to sort of spin and and juggle various kind of plates at this stage just to keep things rolling? Um, well, when I, when I was doing Pablo, I had to juggle it a bit then, but I wasn't didn't do anything live for for quite a while. Um, it's you know playing for a while and I ended up just, just concentrating on when I was doing keen I couldn't do anything else we were touring the world constantly. Yes. That was five years. That took five years and now I've been I've been doing Peter since two thousand seven and libertines and stuff. And uh, but I've managed to still uh, do the odd APB thing during all that time because it's it's not as busy as as the, that five years of keen was. No. Because that was just that was constant. Yes, I would imagine a, a, a band like that is, is it. So just going back, because I slightly missed it, so did you bring out an album on Pop Tones? We had a single on Pop Tones, an EP, and then the, the album that Pop Tones uh, uh, paid for, we ended up coming out on Music for Nations. Right. The story of Love and Hate. Yes, yes. Were you pleased with that? I guess. I, I, still, I still like that LP, yeah. Yes, well, nice it's one. It's a big, massive departure for EPB, though, but, yeah. Yeah, and so when you suddenly find somebody wanting to put all your material out again, who was it, what was the label that they, that sort of came forward? Well, that was Young American Recordings, a guy called Josh, Swede, and Rocco. Uh, that was back in 2006, that was. But now, since then, the latest news is that nobody knows this yet. There's another label called Liberation Hall are going to put all the records out again uh, next year. Yeah, so they're putting all the one things that were not uh, available on CD on CD and putting all the things that weren't available on vinyl on vinyl and re-releasing all the vinyl also. So, so and all the so, the, so everything's good. Everything's going to come out again. That is good news. So, does that mean that you've got kind of everything that you've recorded has, is going to be now you've you know going to have it archived and available there's nothing that's kind of sitting Pretty much well that's that's the idea there's a couple of eps that we're gonna to have to somehow source so we can get the actual the the the, the original uh, recordings to do it but yeah that is the, that is the plan fantastic what was that label again liberation hall liberation hall my god so you do have a lot of um dedicated fans don't you who was obsessed with the band hope so <laughs> <laughs> You do. You'll, um, you'll you'll find out next month, won't you? When you're playing live. Well, I'm indeed. Yeah. Well, I don't know how many tickets I've sold for New York so far. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, with, how have you managed to? Because um, you know, you were saying you've been doing this since the sort of like seventy seven, seventy eight period. We're up to two thousand twenty two. I mean, how have you managed to keep that kind of enthusiasm? Because it's kind of a tough kind of industry to be in, and as a career. <laughs> I don't. I don't care that much. I don't, I don't. I'm not. I don't panic if it's not. If it's not like mass, massively, uh, you know, like successful or anything. It's just something. That I'll just. I can't do anything else. I don't know how to do anything else. Yes. And I, 
got, I've got another music business job to to uh, you know, to pay the bills. So it's not there's no pressure. You know what I mean? Oh. And and John, our drummer, he's a, he's a lock party drum drum technician. So so he's he's fine. Stuart's got a really good job over there. And he's in about three bands in, in, New, in New Jersey. Right. So you do manage. To, so how do you kind of manage to coordinate yourselves? Because you're all sort of spread around the place, which is quite different to how you started, you know, in Aberdeen. Uh, it's not easy. That's that, that bit's not easy. Me and John, he, we get together every now and again. He comes down to Hastings and I've got a studio here and he comes down. We, we just do a, a weekend of rehearsal and then he goes up back. And then, we, and then when we go to America, we go over like a week before. We just do a, you know, a block of rehearsal there and we get it done. But we do everything. We work everything out on the, you know, just you know, just on Zoom where like this kind of thing. Yes, we've all, we've all grown to love Zoom, haven't we, so much? And, uh, and um, yeah. But, you know, but it's because we know the songs that well, and because you've been playing them for so long that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's once you once you get back into the, the, the zone of doing it, it, it comes back pretty quickly. Yeah, it was quite interesting because I was asking Woody Woodmansey, you know, with the David Bowie. He was in a, a musical group called Holy Holy with Tony Visconti. They've, I think they've had a bit of an issue because he's not now in the band and they're touring. But he was right. saying that they only would get together like two days before the tour started and just whiz through the numbers and think, yeah, that's fine, we've done it. Let's start the tour. Because they wouldn't, you know, it wasn't worth the time, but certainly the money was the kind of factor. So I was quite surprised how quickly they did it. But I guess, you know, you would rehearse individually. And Our, our songs are not that difficult. Right. <laughs> Especially if you know how to play them. <laughs> but and John, John is our drummer. I mean, he's just a, he's a very good, he's a, f- a proper field drummer. He, he play anything. He's just an amazing drummer. Best drummer I've ever played with in my life. But one of the best drummers I've ever seen in my life. Right. So, I mean, so it's, like, it's when you've got somebody that good, it's like it's it's easy. Yeah. You know I mean? Like he knows what I, he knows what I'm thinking. I know what he's thinking, and I can just look at him, and it's like you know. Synchronicity. So when you, about 10 years ago, you brought out an, out an album called Jaguar, did you, um, was this kind of material that you had started writing a, a, a few years before and felt... They, a lot of them were from uh, really, really early APB stuff. Uh, some of them were from that and some of them were from uh, Loveless, or Loveless songs, actually. Right. And also, but, most, but most of them were the outtakes from the, from the Three album, uh, which I don't know if you've, if you've got that one. No. Okay, well, I can, if you, I'll get your address and I'll send you that. Oh. I've got, that's on CD, so, and that's my, that's my favourite album. What was that album? Three. Oh, I see. That came out on Red, Red River Records. Yeah, that's, that should be on Apple Music and stuff, if, you, if you've got that. I don't, actually. Yeah, it's got it's on Spotify. That. It is on Spotify, I'll show you. Okay. Oh, okay, let's, let's get um, that, that evil capitalist thing going that's what it looks like i've got you oh let's have a look at your record nice oh god it's so shiny john's artwork as well george george's artwork sorry yeah and so with with your new lineup is it kind of do you just kind of go with the breeze so to speak you know with with sort of not sweating it too much because of not having the original members in the band uh, no, it's just no. It's no point in sweating it, really. I'm not going to do a Prince Andrew, but uh, but uh, <laughs> you know. uh, that's uh, good actually. I just <laughs> uh, 
haven't even thought of. I try to block him in my mind, but yeah, no, yeah, he's a, I'm sorry, he's, he's just settled, isn't he? He has just settled, actually. Yeah, the, so so innocent. You just have to still pay lots of millions. Just hope it's not my money. Anyway, look. Um, thank God we don't live in a place called St Andrew and uh, uh, St Andrew's Close, because thank God I want to change it just for the postal, postal system. Yeah, so look, if you were gonna, if you could have said something to your 16, 18 year old self starting out, is there any sort of words of wisdom or advice you'd have said, look, just do this or don't do that? I just wondered, because you've been doing this now for decades. No, I don't think so. I think it was just, it's just go with the flow and, and you know, follow your instinct, whatever, and don't, don't, don't sweat too much about it. No, don't sweat. <laughs> well, if you do, put, in, put on some links. Did you, I mean, you know, with that experience you had with sleeping bag, rec- sleeping bag records, I mean, was it one of those ones you kind of, once you looked at it, thought, oh, yes, I could see what happened? I just asked because I know this, um, it was JJ French from Twisted Sister. I mean, they, they sort of were huge in the 80s, massive. And then by the end of the 80s, they declared bankruptcy and went, yeah, we made some mistakes, never mind. Yeah, I mean, that was one, something, yeah, yeah. It didn't happen often to us, to be honest. We got stiffed there, we got stiffed at one, one gig in, in Long Island once. It was a mob run little club and we, they just refused to pay us. Oh. Said, said it was supposed to, they were going to supposed to give us, a che- give us cash, but they said, no, we'll just give you a check, which bounced. And we never saw. We never saw. Yes, yeah. I, I've been reading. There was a lot of mob-run venues. That's in in the New York kind of area, wasn't there? Uh, looking back, I, did, I should have I should have worked that one out. When they were, they were taking us out, they were so nice before during the during the whole gig and like, oh, you guys come on, let's we'll show you the, show you the sights. And then after that, I just, and it was completely packed, sold out. So they must have made a fortune. Yes, there you go. Um, I know Twisted Sister was sort of, they had a little moment and then they found all their, um, the, the the truck with all their equipment just got burnt out and they went, mm, and oh. they, you know, so there was no one to turn to because everyone was just like, yeah, we're not getting involved. So yes, there you go. So with the band, do you still have kind of hopes, dreams of sort of recording any new material? Is there anything in the, on the, in the pipeline? Uh, I've been trying to get. I keep every time I'm on the phone, George. I said, "Like, why well, just come down and let's let's do it." And, and but, 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 no, nobody else is that. Inter- none of the original chaps are that interested in doing it. So, but I still do stuff with John, and we've we've re-recorded some. We've re-recorded a version of "Shoot Me Down." Just and actually, the reason for doing it was actually just as an exercise in playing it. And, yes, and just getting the studio going as well, and and a couple other songs, but. But we haven't actually spent enough time to do it yet. But it's all set up to do that. Yeah, just, just haven't done it yet. But we've got great plans to do it. But whether it will ever come, you know, at our age, we're all getting on a bit. Yes, we are. I know. We just have to um, look after ourselves. Wear sensible footwear. We'll be fine. Did you? It's uh, a good idea. <laughs> that's top tip there. I know. I'm full of them. It's a you, top tip. Yeah. I mean, did you? Did you ever sort of come to Norwich and play any gigs here or? I mean, yeah. In UEA, like not long ago, actually. I was in UEA not long ago. Who was that with? Oh no, oh no, it was with Libertines, yeah. But, yeah. The Libertines, right? So you're you're still touring with the, you know, on the uh, your side hustle. Yeah, and it, and it was UEA, but yeah, but yeah, me and, me and my friend Sally we were we laughing at the Norwich connection because we're big Alan Partridge fans. Yes, who isn't? That's we we have our daily dose of Alan on his Instagram feed, which is a classic, actually. I know he's. Yeah. 
questions for me. Yes, I mean, well, everyone I can tell. <laughs> I know, dear old Alan. Yes, uh, I, know, I can't believe he's been going. I, I do remember the first time I listened. Someone gave me a tape that he, you know, they heard on Radio Four, and it was like I think it was probably 1992 or 91, and it was like, God, so 30, 30 years ago. But anyway, look, this has been fantastic. Thank you ever so much for your time. And you know, if you want, I, when I put it out, I can always send you the link, and you can put it on your social media page, which is grown by the day. But Good luck with the tour on next month. And um, yes, you just got to navigate getting into the country and go through the security, which is always good fun when you go to America. Yes, and we haven't done it for a while. And well, let's hope we get there because the, with all the new COVID rules and uh, and uh, yeah, it should be, I think that it'll be fine this time, but yeah, it's not to the end of March. Did you have any aborted ones last year where you were almost set yeah, up? Yeah, as I said, we were postponed three, postponed, postponed three times. This is the fourth attempt. At the, at the and uh, yeah, but um, we always knew, you know, we, we, we didn't lose any flights or anything like that. We always uh, either hadn't got booked them yet or we had ones that were completely changeable. Yes. We, British Airways had a good thing. You could, you could change it up to two years. Yeah, well, so, good luck on that and I uh, hope it all goes well and hope you have some merchandise. They love merch, don't they? Yeah, we've got some, but I don't know if I'll take it with us this time. I, I, I don't know. But I might send it over in advance. But, it's quite uh, difficult because I, I just, for some reason, I was looking, reading stuff about Suzanne Vega, who's just come over, and people were like, oh, it was a great gig, but there was no merchandise. That's a bit weird. What's the kind mm. of, what's the rationale for not, not having merchandise? Is it just because of the travelling? Well, if you're travelling light and you're travelling just in a, and just three people in a car, it's, you can't have big bulky boxes. We're just taking guitars and pedals in, in a car. Or if you're going straight on the train, it's impossible. Or, and you've got to have another person doing it. You've got another person to you know sell it and do you know, all this stuff. And all these venues take loads of commission. And there's and you've got to think about it at the end. And but we have we have usually we do we, we do sort something out. Yeah. Because of the court, court, I might we just might not this time. Because of your because of your New York connection, I'm just kind of curious. Did you ever record any sessions or records in New York with any? Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, well, what kind of girl was recorded in New York? Uh, Funk Invective was recorded in New York. When I feel this way, it was recorded in New York. Uh, One day was mixed, remixed in New York. Um, yeah, yeah. Because because kind of last week I did an interview with a guy called Martin um, BC. B-I-S-I, -I. and I mean, he's got one of those kind of very cool studios that lots of people like Sonic Youth had worked in, and, um, you know, people from that kind of New York kind of, not underground, you know, punk scene. I didn't know if you'd ever been to his studio and did any recordings. Yeah, what's the studio called? Good question. I'm glad you answered that, because I can't now remember, and I only spoke to him last week, but I could find it very quickly, because... Um, New York, right? Minute. There are and, hundreds of years in New York. So. <laughs> yes, but I guess people like this one because it's oh, it was set up with him and Brian Eno and Bill Laswell, and okay. and it was kind, it was called BC Studio, and it was originally called OAO Operation All Out Studio, yeah. but that doesn't ring a bell, does it? No, we did do, we did do a couple of things at Plaza Sound, which is the seventh floor of Radio City. Now, right. That was one day we mixed that there and uh, we recorded um, what kind of girl there. I mean, we mixed that at a place called Secret Sound. And that was another one was mixed at Media Sound. 
Um, and then the latter two records we did in Jersey City at a place called, God, Phantom? No, Phantom. Something like that. But that was with Andy Wallace, who mixed uh, the, the uh, Nevermind album. He produced, right. the last, he produced the last two records in there. Who He happened to be managed by our manager, which it helped to get him on board. But uh, yeah, it wasn't working with him. He liked it loud, that's for sure. Blimey. I'm glad you've got good earplugs because, frankly, you'd be deaf otherwise, wouldn't you? What was that? I said, <laughs> I said I'm glad you've got good earplugs. Uh, uh, no, I did not. I'm a bit... Your sight's a bit terrible. No, it's not that great these days. I'm not surprised. Anyway, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. This has been good. And um, I'm, I'm just, you know, fingers crossed for next month and, and uh, the reissues for next year. Well, thanks very much, David. It's been brilliant. And if you want to do something with George, I will get in touch with him. Oh, yes, George as well. Yes, I would. I, yeah, that would be good. Interesting to see if he, he correlates his answers with mine. That'd be quite... <laughs> you never know, I might be speaking rubbish. Yeah, I always found just on that point, when there was like, sometimes I have a, like a three-way, and it's sometimes just difficult when people... You know, because we're all very polite now. So everyone goes, oh, no, after you. No, after you. Sorry. No, what were you <clears> going to say? And it's, you, yeah. <laughs> it just becomes a bit like, you know, and it's nice. There isn't one person just saying, look, I'm just going to talk for 50 minutes and no one's going to. Everyone's a bit more the opposite. Yeah. Now. Everyone's going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, so it's just easier and, and it's kind of nice. Anyway, look, it's lovely to meet you and keep in touch. And well, I'll keep in touch. And um, regards to Anna McGee. Yes, indeed, indeed. Good, yeah, good, good. That was good. That was good. Anyway, thanks very much, and uh, yeah, good, good. Have a good evening. Take care. See you. Bye. Thank you. There you go. That's how to end a conversation or not. Anyway, look, I love keeping those bits in just for my own amusement. So there you go. If you liked them, good. If you didn't. I don't care. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Ian Slater for giving me the time for that interview from APB, the band. Um, as we mentioned, it dates in America in March 2022. Do check them out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I don't know. Facebook anyway. Um, if you want to contact me for some reason, hopefully nice, but if it's not, don't bother. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify. I know iTunes, Podbean, do you check it out if you're interested in 80s pop. And also there's quite a few about David Bowie as well. So um, fill your boots. It's all good stuff. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.